0: As the pandemic winds down, another public health emergency rages, and it is not getting as much attention. I'm speaking, of course, about the opioid crisis. Theresa Tam, Chief Medical Officer of Health for Canada, tweeted last week that the latest data shows that in 2021, 7,560 people died of opioid-related overdose. On average, 21 people died and 17 were hospitalized every day. My guest on the program today penned an opinion piece in the Vancouver Sun in 2020, warning that our pandemic response could dramatically escalate the crisis. And sadly, he has been proven right. He is a former criminal justice advisor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who underwent a transformation in his views. Becoming a passionate advocate for the decriminalization of drugs, for a safe supply, and above all, for more empathy and compassion for Canadians struggling with addiction.
1: It's the question, the trauma question is is first of all is you know what brought that person to that place in their life? What happened to them? Not why are they doing it, but what happened to them? And going beyond that, going, this person has found a way to cope with horrific pain in their life. And this is what has helped them to survive. They, they are still alive. They, they, there's still a chance for them actually to get healing. And in many, of many ways, these folks are, are incredibly resilient.
0: Benjamin Perrin is a professor at the University of British Columbia's Law School. He's also the author of Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. The book is a compelling and evidence-based journey through the overdose epidemic. And I'm so happy that he could join me today to talk about it. Ben Perrin is my guest today on Lean Out. Ben, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for making the time to come on the show today. Such an important issue. And I think your book is a really thorough investigation into it. Also, just a really interesting lesson in keeping an open mind and following the evidence. So I want to start today by talking about your position going into this. You're a law professor. In the past, you've identified as conservative. You were top criminal justice advisor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper. What prior conceptions of addiction did you have going into this?
1: Well, I never really spent much time thinking about drug policy at all. I mean, you know, what happens when you become involved in politics is usually there's like a couple of issues that are really important to you, really passionate about and you typically find a party that advances those the way that you most agree with. But what happens then is you sign on to this like party platform, basically, where they have like literally hundreds of policy positions on things you've never even thought about. And so for me, one of the main reasons I got involved in politics and also took on this position in, in former Prime Minister Harper's office was my concern for victims of crime. That was the area I'd done research and work in. For years, I first got introduced to that area as a teenager actually is volunteering at a center for abused women and kids in calgary and so i had that kind of in my mind as i took that job on so yeah so my former views were really just sort of like well okay well the party says like you know drugs are bad so you know it cause a lot of harm and they should stay and be illegal and we should try to suppress the supply and crack down on demand like it on its face it makes sense right i mean that's Fair enough. And so I I really did not think about it. I I described my views about drug policy, previous views from a decade ago as a combination, a deadly combination of of ignorance and ideology.
0: Hmm. It's a pretty powerful statement. And you know, this issue, there's just so much to learn on this issue. I've been doing a deep dive into it for a while. I still learned so much from your book. So I want to pull a few of the threads. That really surprised me. So Canada's prohibition approach dates back to the late 1800s. The impetus was not about public health at all. You learned instead that it was about stopping the mixing between Chinese Canadians and white Canadians. What can you tell me about that history?
1: Well, I was shocked to to get into this because one of the things you you need to do when you're talking about changing policy is you want to look at why. What was the evidence to support the policy to begin with? Right? What were the reasons for it? And do those still, still stand today? And I, I was absolutely shocked to find that here in my home province of British Columbia, that that is where the prohibition on, on opium actually began. So just as the railroad across Canada was being finished being constructed, like literally it's the last like year or two, the largely Chinese and Indigenous workforce was basically, they've outlived their usefulness. And so this was an incredibly racist and is still a very racist country, and but overtly so. And I went, went through the archives and actually found the reports that were used to support the federal government's decision to criminalize opioids. And at the time, you're talking about smoking opium, very, very different from the kind of opioids we're talking about today, of course. But the... In BC, there was a you know evaluation of like the harms of alcohol, the harms of opium, and it was very clear that the public health, public safety issues rather, really were about alcohol. Alcohol was you know what was contributing to a lot of the you know, violence and disorder, which is actually still the case today. Whereas, you know, people who were smoking opium in opium dens weren't bothering anyone. And instead, what it was was there were a number of very sensational high profile media reports that I've I cited in my book of white women finding their way into these opium dens and this massive like racial panic about the intermixing of races. And I, I even went to the, you know, government of Canada and BC legislative history at this time and found the most, you know, horrifically racist quotes. You've seen them in the book uh, yeah. about, you know, what the premier of BC believed, you know, that this should be a white province that he literally says that Sir Johnny McDonald, people know at this point, I think very well what he He said and did with respect to things like residential schools, the stuff he said that was anti-Asian racism is very underreported and unknown about, really. And his vision for Canada, he describes in his own words as being an Aryan nation. Like he literally uses those words. This was referred to as the Chinese problem. There were laws passed that were... Shockingly similar to what we would see just decades later in Nazi Germany under the Nuremberg Laws, which prohibited certain races from having certain professions, which prohibited them from engaging in certain types of employment that required employers to keep lists of Chinese people who worked for these companies. One of the other things was to further harass and intimidate the Chinese population at the time in British Columbia was to criminalize opium.
0: Mm. It's just, I mean, it's wild. I had not heard of that at all before. Another piece that really stands out to me is, you know, you do a great job in this book of outlining why the opioid crisis has been so hard to address. So I want to talk about how fentanyl, this toxic drug supply is getting into the country. What did you learn about how the drug is making its way into Canada and why it's so hard to stem that flow?
1: Fentanyl is a th- synthetic opioid. What that means is it's created in a lab. It's not naturally occurring. It didn't exist until someone created it, and it was created in the late 1950s in Belgium. It was designed for palliative cancer patients to alleviate pain and suffering. It's widely used in veterinary and human medical care. I myself, when I went through a procedure a couple of years ago after writing overdose, asked the anesthesiologist, "Hey, what? Just curious, like, what are you giving me?" And they said, oh, it, was, it was fentanyl. They didn't want to tell me. Actually, I thought, okay. Well, I guess I'm going to find out what this is like now. So, it's safe in that setting because we know the potency. I'm being monitored. We know the contents. For me, I would, it was totally safe. Right. Both of those aspects about you know the potency and contents and being monitored. Both those, if they're absent either or both, that's what leads to people overdosing and dying. And so, street drugs are contaminated with varying degrees of, of fentanyl, how does it get into Canada? Well, the research that I did for this book at the time was that it was largely coming from China through the mail. And so when you talk about the potency of this substance, it is significantly more potent than naturally occurring opioids like heroin. So heroin, people know what the you know, poppies in Afghanistan and that. Well, it turns out that, you know, as the global war on drugs has advanced through the decades and literally we're not talking hundreds of kilograms we're talking like tons of heroin that's and i'm not it's not hyperbole it's literally tons of heroin and cocaine have been seized organized crime did not pack up their bag and go home this is you know in the trillions of dollars likely the global illicit drug market if you could ever estimate it so someone somewhere figured out you could you could make this stuff why bother you know trying to smuggle it into countries in packages that are large enough to get detected Fentanyl is is shipped into Canada in greeting cards. So literally, that's how small it can be, just packaged in like a little Ziploc or cellophane package, and that's how it's entering Canada. So it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's almost two million pieces of small mail that come into Vancouver's international airport from China every single month, and so <laughs> you're really quite frankly wasting your time and resources if you're trying to crack down on it at the border. And even if you could what law enforcement told me was like methamphetamines, for example, that used to be imported. Once the crackdown happens at the border, they just make it in Canada. And then Canada actually becomes an exporter of these drugs. So the Mm -hmm. idea of of cracking down on supply as a way to address the opioid crisis is is a joke. At best, it's a joke. And at worst, it actually fuels the opioid crisis because it created the incentives to create more potent drugs that are easier to hide.
0: Right. So the iron law of prohibition is at work here. Can you just explain to people what that is?
1: Yeah, that was another mind blowing concept that I had, because most of us, even if we've never taken that economics course, and even if we have, quite frankly, we would assume that if you crack down on a supply, then you know you reduce the supply, that's going to you know increase the price, right? The less of a commodity that exists that's in demand, it's going to increase the price of it, which will make it less accessible for people and that kind of thing. That's not how it works with illicit markets. So, and particularly substances. So instead what happens is the harder the enforcement, the harder the drugs, that's the short form of the iron law of prohibition. And it was first observed during alcohol prohibition in the U S. And so people have probably heard of moonshine, right? And the, the the stories people may have heard of people like going blind and even dying from alcohol. That was just too potent. Like it was just too strong. The percentage was too strong. Those are real. That's the real thing. And the researchers who looked at this found that the average potency of alcohol during prohibition just skyrocketed. Why? Well, if you're carrying alcohol in like beer form, so something that's between like, I don't drink beer anymore, <laughs> it's too, but you know, remember beers around, you know, four or 5% if you get an IPA that's 8% or some really crazy Belgian beer, that's 9% instead of that's really easy to find. So if you think of only, you know, 5% of the product is alcohol, 95% isn't. So what's going to make it a lot easier to smuggle? Well, how about if like 60 or 70% of the, the product was, was alcohol? Then we have to smuggle less f- less bulk. It's, it's mm. going to be harder for the authorities to find. So instead of these big trucks, we can smuggle it in the back, backs of cars. Same thing with what we see with not just opioids. We saw it with cocaine, with cannabis, and with heroin, that the the increasing number of those substances that were seized – paradoxically, what you see is their potency increases for the reasons we talked about already. But shockingly, the prices actually go down as well. Why? Because it's a lot cheaper to make fentanyl than it is to smuggle it into the country.
0: So wild. And then on the policing side, there are issues as well. So I had also not heard this piece that for the police, if previously part of a strategy is to allow the drug into circulation and to conduct surveillance and to figure out and to really build a case. But you can't do that with fentanyl because it's so toxic that people will die
1: that's one of the reasons the police gave for not being able to catch the so-called big fish. I think that that's, there's some legitimacy to that for sure. I also think it's just a lot easier to crack down on so-called street level dealers. And, mm-hmm. you know, when the police, you know, say things like, like the Vancouver police department did to me during the, the research, I'm, I'm, I think it was, I want to give them credit actually for even speaking with me. I, I do other research in that public authorities wanting to talk to you. I have a, that's a serious issue about lack of public accountability, right? When a public agency won't even speak to a academic researcher, like that should be a huge red flag. I have that issue right now in a current project I won't get into right now, but I want to give the VPD credit for actually being open and transparent there. And interestingly, when I asked them for how many drug traffickers they have arrested, you know, just tell me the numbers. Mm -hmm. First of all, it took them a little bit of time to gather it. And I was like, fair enough. And then I asked them, well, like, what proportion of these were, you know, like street-level people who were dealing drugs to individuals who would use those drugs, right? That's what I'm calling a street-level dealer, and how many were so-called middlemen and women and the people higher up in the chain. People may have watched, you know, Breaking Bad and they might have or the Wire and have some idea. That's like those are films and movies, but there is a hierarchy within any drug trafficking network and cartel. And I've literally seen the what's called a targeting chart in the. Police officers' offices. When I go to speak with them, they don't cover those up. I, I'm not looking at names or anything, but I'm, I'm like, there's Mr. X. You know, they're like they literally have. We, we know this person exists. We don't know who they are, and there's like literally quite literally a silhouetted figure. So, what the police ended up doing though, when I, I sort of found out they had around 900 or so cases of drug traffickers that had been charged, is I wanted to know well how many been convicted and how many were street level. And it turned out the vast majority well over, uh, you've read the book more recently than I have, but it's well over 90% were street level dealers. And mm-hmm. well, what does that mean? Well, typically these are people who also are using drugs. They are addicted as well. And so they're not even, you know, getting money. Typically it would be along the lines of here's 10 hits, here's 10 doses, you sell nine, give us the money back and you can keep one. So it's a way to keep people in their addiction. And, it, you know, not everyone who uses and is addicted to, to opioids is, is on the street, but there is a you know proportion that are. And to pay for or secure these drugs that they have a dependency on, it leads them to, because it's illegal, it leads them to do all kinds of things that are very harmful to themselves and to others. Things like dealing drugs to other people, things like being involved in the survival sex trade, things like breaking into the cars or homes to or businesses, mm-hmm. shoplifting. This is what happens when you criminalize a drug. You hand it over to the illicit criminal underworld and they decide what the potency is, that the contents, there's no accountability. And then you have to find ways to pay for that, which is going to be illicit as well.
0: Mm -hmm. I do want to get to uh, both safe supply and decriminalization. But first, stigma is an issue that comes up time and time again in this book. And part of the problem with this opioid crisis is it's disproportionately impacting marginalized groups, poor people, indigenous people, those who've been incarcerated. The incarceration piece I was not aware of. Talk to me about why jail puts people at greater risk of overdosing.
1: Yeah, so people who are recently released from custody are 50 times 5-0, 50, 50 times more likely to overdose and die than someone in the general population. So sending someone to jail or prison or to, you know, remand denied bail if they're awaiting charges is quite literally equivalent to a death sentence for many of them. And in British Columbia, we were, you know, also surprised to find that out because the Corner in our province has done i i would say a fairly substantial amount of work on this issue and has had several what are called death panel reviews where they don't just do autopsies on individuals but they actually then aggregate and say we're going to look at everyone who died from overdose every single one and we want to identify trends and like let's get to the bottom of this and one of the top level findings that they made which really again hasn't got a lot of coverage is that um over 40% of people in BC who died of illicit drug overdose during this one and a half year period they studied had recently spent time in, and this was just provincial corrections. They were, I don't think they're including federal Mm. and in Alberta, I know we'll get to decriminalization in a moment, but that premier Jason Kenney recently announced, I don't know how this helps his case, but he said 50% five, zero half of all Albertans who overdosed and died since 2017 had recently spent time in provincial custody. Wow. So, yeah. So, why? Right. Let's so let's talk about why. So, the main reason is that in prison, drugs are still widely accessible, but certainly not the same way that they are in the community. And so, when someone who has uh, opioid use disorder is incarcerated, they're using less than they were before. Their tolerance rapidly declines. We're talking within like you know kind of days, days and weeks sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, as a result, when they are subsequently released, even if they were only in for like 30 days or something on a short term sentence, which is what most people are, are actually in Canada in, in prison, it's short term sentences or uh, denied bail, they're at substantially higher risk of overdosing and dying because of the reduced tolerance. So, during my current research project, which is looking at reimagining the criminal justice system as a whole now, I've interviewed people who have spent time in prison, who have substance use disorders, who have overdosed. And they've described to me, for example, one of the one of the men I spoke with said, yeah, when I was released and I went back to use, I was looking at it and I, he's like, he kind of was aware about the reduced tolerance. So he was going to use less, but he looked at a piece of what he said. He described it as like a crumb. He said, like compared to like a loaf of bread or a sandwich, right? He's like, he's like, I looked at this and I'm like, that's a crumb. It's not even going to do anything for me. He said, and the next thing he knew it, he was unconscious and, and was had overdosed and fortunately was revived by someone. But like that's the that that was his own experience. And it it, you know, I, I find it very helpful to speak with and the research does this too. Like I speak to people who have been impacted, because we can talk studies all day. You know, it was a hundred peer-reviewed studies for this, hundred for that. But ultimately, my understanding and the transformation I went through here was a change of heart and mind. And it started with really hearing from people and talking to them, people who use drugs, people who are surviving family members people who work in the system, you know, the healthcare and criminal justice systems who were saying to me, like the cops are saying, we can't prosecute our way out. Like, don't give us more money to crack down on people using drugs. Like we think ultimately it came out later saying we should decriminalize these drugs. That's what the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police said.
0: Indeed. And I, I also wonder, I mean, you note that men are much more likely to die of overdoses than women and young men working in the trades are particularly affected. Do you have thoughts on why?
1: Well, one of the reasons uh, that I, I think came through in the, in the research is that, first of all, most trades jobs, and people can call in and tell us we're wrong on this, but what I heard was that many, many trade positions don't do criminal record checks. And so people who have even a low, like a minor record, you know, you've got really limited options for your, for your life and your career. The average person in federal custody, by the way, this is also a shocker for me, has an eighth grade education level literacy level eighth grade okay so we're talking about who are in our prisons it's disproportionately people who are uh, indigenous people who are poor people who are unemployed the average person who w- at the time of their arrest uh, was unemployed like the average person the average or the median income so as if you count you know to the middle of the pack the median income for people released from prison federal prison was 0 dollars okay so like literally we're not you know looking at a situation where the folks who are being incarcerated are representative of the population, or I would make sure I underline this more representative of people who commit crimes. Like that's, <laughs> it's not like it's just poor folks committing crimes. It's poor folks who can't afford a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And right. And so, yeah, there's, there's bigger issues there, but in terms of the trades. Yeah. And also the other thing with trades too, is it's a, you know, often a place where people get injured and, you know, we hear many stories of of, of young men and, and women, but we're talking about, you know, the disproportionate impact on, on young men who get injured and started being prescribed. They were never using drugs before. They started getting prescribed painkillers and opi- opioids, and then became came to use, uh, become dependent on them and have an addiction. And then they start, you know, turning street drugs when their doctor says, hey, look, this has gone too far and I'm cutting you off. And they end up going to the street supply. That also happens with police officers, like I, you know, and firefighters and and, and first responders. There's, there's a a substantial amount of kind of workplace hazard that's related to that, and you you know you're not allowed to go back on your job as a police officer if you're using you know prescription opioids is what most people told me. And so to get back to work, you'd have to say, oh, yeah, I'm not using anymore. and next thing you know, there's people who are uh, who I was told would be literally in one minute policing the community in an off shift. They're going and purchasing these substances that they're addicted to as well. So this really knows no. Socio demographic but it is important, I think, to recognize the, the dis- disproportionate impact on uh, some of the folks we talked about. And then the last big piece for this, too, for me, was just seeing the role that things like childhood trauma play. Yeah, and so you know, that's that's a, that, that hit me really hard.
0: Yeah, there that there's that story that you tell in the book of a, a person who had. I mean, we're not using the word trauma lightly here. Like who had. No been at the murder of their mother and who had been left with the body for days before being discovered. I mean, these are serious, serious trauma. And we know from the work of Gabor Mate that, you know, many of the people who are on the downtown east side in Vancouver, for example, have experienced these really huge levels of childhood trauma. Do you think that politicians understand that piece enough?
1: No, I, I don't think they do at all. In this country, they don't. And if they do, they don't care. You know, when we look at things like childhood trauma and intergenerational trauma. The studies have found that you know the typical experience, uh, and of course everyone had had a unique and individualized experience, but when when researchers look at this, they're trying to find trends, right? And so when they look at residential school survivors, they find that you're looking at around six out of ten what are so called called adverse childhood experiences on yeah. average. And that's kind of I would even say maybe even a minimum, but that, that's what they said it's on average. And if you have over four, you're already at substantial, like seven at a time, 10 times more likely to use substances. Why? Because these, these are, we talked about this before. These are painkillers. People are self-medicating. Uh, it doesn't mean everyone who has a traumatic experience is going to become addicted to opioids, but they're, they're, they're very likely if they don't have substantial support to turn to other, what are called maladaptive coping strategies, things that do help them survive. They, they, they keep them alive for a time, but eventually these things catch up with us. And, you know, Many of us have addictions to things that don't cause our deaths. If we substituted uh, social media addiction or shopping addiction or, a, you know, pornography addiction for an opium addiction, next thing you know, like we'd all be dead. So, you know, or most of us would be dead because those things, you know, don't kill in the volumes that they do. We don't talk about alcohol enough, but, you know, that's a socially accepted drug, right? It's it's caffeine's another one, but I'm going to pick on alcohol and tobacco is another one. These are legal drugs. And they actually, on their own, kill more people than kill opioids every year, right? The reason we're talking about an opioid crisis and not an alcohol crisis is because, first of all, the dramatic deaths of an overdose are, are, I think, quite shocking. The second reason is this is escalating. This is getting worse, and it has been getting worse, and so it needs substantial public attention. But the other is stigma. Um, There's a huge Mm -hmm. stigma around around using heroin or cocaine or methamphetamine or MDMA, it's huge. Even just hearing those words, people are going to have images coming into their mind of who they're thinking uses this. And, you know, you don't want to associate with them maybe or things like that or judgment or blame. If they haven't, you know, walked through this journey with themselves for a loved one or friend, that that's probably what may be coming to mind. maybe. Uh, Whereas, you know, you only have to go on, on, you know, Facebook or Twitter for 10 minutes to find the, you know, my wife shared them with me once in a while. All the kind of, they call it like the "mommy wine" memes, right? Mm-hmm. You've seen some of these maybe like you know, and they're they, this is socially acceptable to be like, "Hey, let's go." You know, it's been a long day. Have a, have a glass of wine, or you know, work events are still alcohol events at most places. Um, I saw that in law firms, rampant alcohol use in, in professions where there's substance use problems with alcohol, and so we we've chosen as a society to say, "Well, it's okay." to become intoxicated on certain substances but not others and things like opium uh opioids rather they are you know not party drugs like i didn't know this i never had used these substances i assumed they kind of were like i didn't know well what happens if you you use them is it basically makes you pretty tired and what an overdose is is someone who has taken more than their body's able to essentially process um and it shuts down your uh, it makes you unconscious and slows your breathing till eventually you stop breathing and you literally die in your, die in your sleep. It's a, it's a silent death and and you're not able to call for help, which is why using alone is so deadly. So when we criminalize things, we make it more difficult for people to be uh, upfront and tell us what's, you know, that they're using. When we have stigma about things and shame about things, we make people isolate and that, that, that leads to tragically many people dying.
0: Mm. And let's let's spend a moment now on safe supply. The Naomi study you referenced that in the book for listeners. Can you explain what that is and and what the results have been from that study?
1: So there were quite a few people in Vancouver's downtown east side who had made substantial efforts at at uh, getting into treatment and recovery. So the average person in the Naomi study, I believe, had over ten unsuccessful. We say unsuccessful. I don't think that's a fair term, but that's what they described as ten attempts at reducing or or stopping using. And they had tried all kinds of different things. Some people have probably heard of methadone and there's there's all kinds of different approaches to treatment and recovery that had tried and hadn't worked for them. And most of them were long-term intravenous uh, substance users. So I think 15 plus years kind of on average. So these are people who were who were going to be using drugs anyway, right? This is not a group of people who had, who we can even look at and say, you haven't even tried anything else. So, so just to give the context for that. And so. What the researchers did in the, in these studies, or two of them. The first was called Naomi, the other one was called Salome. Is they provided them with opioids that were of known contents and potency. So these were created in you know medical settings, seeing you know, exactly what was in there, and the individuals would come into a medical clinic and they would be a, a witnessed use. So they would they would use the substances there. Um, this is an intravenous study, so they would inject the drugs there and they would be monitored for a few minutes, uh, long enough to know if they were going to overdose or not. And so if they were, they could be given support. And they would uh, they would come once or twice a day, depending on the studies, kind of how these studies typically work. And then researchers tracked things. They they looked into things like, well, were you still using street drugs? If you were, how much? How much were you spending on them? How are things going in your life? Were you reconnecting with family? Were you eating jobs? And what they found was across those, also oh, well, were you overdosing, right? Were you dying? Uh, what you know, like to track the health, health, and criminal justice and social metrics. And they found that across those metrics, people who are provided with that safe supply did better on, on all those fronts at a statistically significant level, like uh, you know, this is numbers. Uh, but also on a personal level, as I spoke with with people, I talked to judges and criminal defense lawyers, and they told me that. They found out later on that they had clients or accused persons who were appearing before them, who ended up in these these studies in the downtown east side, and they they didn't know they were in the study. They just stopped showing up one day. So one criminal defense lawyer I talked to said, "Look, there was a guy he called a frequent flyer. He says literally hundreds of hundreds of charges that he'd been had over the years, and he he would see this person on like a sounds like a weekly or monthly basis. It was a clearly the criminal justice system was not helping. It was in fact probably hurting the situation more." and one day he stopped hearing from this person and he said i assumed he died I assumed he he passed away but he said i was shocked that i saw him one day driving by me and waving saying hey how's it going and he was in he ended up in one of these safe supply projects and it 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 really shows us that you know folks who are who have you know opioid use disorder and or who are using you know toxic street drugs that it's not the drugs themselves that are the the lion's share of the the problem. It's the criminalization of them that actually contributes to the harm in in some pretty huge ways. And um, across the board, the sort of harm reduction measures that we see, things like uh, overdose prevention sites or supervised consumption sites, these are designed and safe supply are designed to keep people alive so that when, if and when they're ready to get into treatment or try another treatment, there's other new drugs, things like Suboxone, which I, I look at in the book as well, that help people stabilize and reduce cravings and withdrawal symptoms, which drives a lot of drug use in people who have these disorders, that they can actually begin to you know move on with their lives and that they're able to, to use less. And that's what those studies found as well. And, and so so ultimately, the evidence is there for this. It's a matter of whether we're willing to try something different because what we have been doing to criminalize people who use drugs for over a hundred years has, has not worked and has made it worse
0: hmm And I mean, to that point, I mean, the political will is the major issue here. And this goes straight up to the PMO. Uh, your sources told you about a meeting with Justin Trudeau, in which he just flat out said decriminalization is not going to happen. Marijuana was hard enough. You were able to independently verify that statement with another participant in that meeting. What do you think it would take to get the federal liberals on board?
1: Well, they had an opportunity in you know, May of 2022 to do that, the NDP brought a private members' bill forward that would decriminalize uh, simple possession, which is what public health experts uh, have said is needed. The Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police has said is needed. Growing number of, of uh, organizations, and they chose to not do it. They voted against that legislation, and so um, this is this is an, is clearly a political thing. You have on one hand the conservatives who are continuing to oppose decriminalization who actively campaign on criminalizing and demonizing people who use drugs. They're continuing to do that. We see that in the current federal uh, conservative leadership race. We see that with provincial conservative politicians like Jason Kenney in Alberta and Doug Ford in Ontario. And as a result, the liberals kind of, even if they were more inclined to decriminalize, which is party policy, like their parties passed resolutions calling for this as well, the rank and file is supportive of it. The polling shows that too. They're afraid. They're afraid the conservatives are going to say you guys are soft on crime. You're going to let you know kids are going to get start using drugs if you decriminalize. Our neighborhoods are going to become. They they beat that drum hard, and so it's it is fear and it is politics that is driving policy instead of you know the best available evidence for what would keep people alive during this public health emergency.
0: Yeah, I mean to that point, I looked at a lot of the research on this. I've come to the same conclusions as you. I I support these measures for sure, but trying to get my mind around why people might disagree with them. So one thing that occurs to me, I mean, the last time I was on the downtown east side in Vancouver was 2019, late 2019. I was doing a talk tape series for CBC on the opioid crisis. And a lot of these progressive policies that you support, that I support, have been experimented with in that neighborhood. And the neighborhood looked the worst that I've ever seen. Um, It was just the level of despair on the street was just uh, really heart-wrenching. Like, why is there still so much despair if these policies are beneficial?
1: Well, to start with, overdose prevention sites, safe supply, decriminalization, th- those are about keeping people alive. Okay. They're, it's not about giving them jobs or employment. It can, like I said, it can stabilize people to help them get into that. But we actually don't have, we actually have not rolled out these policies in any large scale. We've been talking about pilot projects, small numbers of people. There are people on massive wait lists to get access to safe supply right now. We have seen the evidence around people, uh, these policies working is, is, is clear. But what they're not designed to do is alleviate, you know, uh, hundreds of years of like colonial oppression, um, you know, all the massive inequalities that we see, the lack of uh, mental health support so if I look at the so I was shooting the downtown east side last week I live you know 10 minutes from there and I have a son who's who's has autism and some other disabilities he loves to ride the bus this is like one of his favorite things to be I let him pick the bus and he picked the bus to go downtown and and yeah we ended up driving through there and I I was every time I I have spent time in my research and going down and meeting with people and speaking with people and and that it it reminded me of some U.S. cities I've been to actually so I just Mm -hmm. to put that in context a little bit I think that It is uh, quite jarring for people when they are not exposed to that. But what you need to realize, you know, I came to see was that the downtown east side has become a it is a it is a community of people who care about each other. So there's two ways to look at it. One is that it's a dumping ground. For all of Canada, actually, most people in the downtown eastside, many of them are from throughout Canada. It's it's like literally, uh, and the courts tell us that too, because when they ask people, "Where are you from?", it's it's because it's it is one of the only places in the country, if not the only place in the country, where you you can survive. And I use that word very loosely. You can survive through a, through a winter, and some people don't survive even in Vancouver through a winter. So I want to be super careful about how I say that. But it does not hit minus forty. In yeah. Vancouver, okay? yeah, it doesn't. It just doesn't. I live here. It just never gets that cold, or even half that cold. So, people have been dying during the heat dome. So, like, it's like, be really careful here. But people tend to end up there as the as the last stop for many folks. And so, when we look at that and we say, "Well, who's responsible for that?" and "Are these people choosing that?" and that, never, I mean, this is people who've ended up in this situation through, you know, like I say, decades and centuries of failed government policy and us turning our backs on them. And it's a lot easier to tolerate. A concentrated area of undesirable people, which is how most of society views folks in the downtown east side, than having them spread out throughout our, you know, white picket fence communities and such, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I I see that's the one piece to kind of how people look at the downtown east side. But the other I do see is, like you said, this is an innovation hub for saving lives and like peer based work, people who are who have lived experience with using drugs, with being involved in the criminal justice system. Uh, who are survivors of intimate sexual violence? They are literally running like world class programs and organizations in the downtown East Side that are helping folks who end up there. And so, at once, this is both a tragic situation and an inspiring place. And so, mm-hmm. it's hard to to look past the what most people would see as this the, the, like literally the detritus on the street of, you know, use syringes and garbage, but then to look past that. And that's what I, I really encourage people to do in the book is look past the obvious, look past the person there who who looks high or has, is moving around in a kind of odd way. First of all, go, is that, maybe that's someone who has a mental health disorder to begin with. Like maybe that's not substance use at all. And even if it is, it's the question, the trauma question is, is first of all, is, you know, what brought that person to that place in their life? What happened to them? Not why are they doing it, but what happened to them? And going beyond that, going, this person has found a way to cope with horrific pain in their life. And this is what has helped them to survive. They, they are still alive. They, they, there's still a chance for them actually to get healing. And in many of many ways, these folks are, are incredibly resilient there. You talked about big trauma. Yeah. Talk about big trauma. You know, mm-hmm. I've had little, little T trauma in my life. And that was, that was more than I, I felt I could bear at certain points. So, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous strength and, and resilience that that I see there as well.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that because that really does come through when you do any reporting down there as well. The, the, the strength of community is quite amazing. And that is the note that I wanted to end on today. The, I want us to find a moment of hope in all of this because there is a lot of hope in this field as well. There's one of the takeaways from the book, I think, is just how many good people across this country are working so hard to address this crisis. You dedicated this book to little Doug Nickerson. Tell us his story and why it moved you so much.
1: Yeah, boy, uh, there were a few times I was brought to tears doing this research. I have no shame in saying that. And this was one of them is um, hearing about him. The first time I heard about Doug Nickerson, it was by a police officer who was telling me about him in Surrey, and she said there was this guy. She didn't even name him. I think she misnamed him actually at first, and she corrected herself later in the interview. And she said, "Yeah, look, there was this guy who was going up and down the street in this sort of tent city area in, in Surrey at the time, and he had a bunch of naloxone kits. Naloxone is this drug that is a you know temporary temporary antidote for an overdose. And he was t- he took it on himself to like literally go up and down the street, and if people overdosed, he would go in and revive them." And he ended up reversing well over a hundred uh, overdoses. He literally saved lives. And you know, like and anywhere, anywhere else, someone did that. Imagine someone saved like a hundred people's lives. Like we would know their name. Like they'd be we'd be like, put them on the five dollars ten dollars bill, like let's get John A. McDonald out there and put them on. Like we would literally say that. But like nobody knows who this guy is. The police officer, you know, who even Brent mentioned didn't even mention his name. And he he did pass away, uh, not from an overdose, but he had had um, had lived experience with substance use, and he did get a small kind of honorific by the by the 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 city, I believe it was, or, or one of the local organizations. But that's why I dedicated the book to him. I mean, this is ultimately what I saw too, and not everyone, but most people I met who were working on the front lines of this crisis were people who either themselves had been through this very difficult journey of recovery, or they had had supported loved ones who who maybe didn't, didn't make it. And uh, that, that motivation, that drive, that understanding, that compassion, it came through and it's, it's, it's contagious. Um, And I think that's really the, the message of hope that there is hope that this story is not done being written yet. We are at the worst of the worst of the worst today of the number of people dying. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. since the four years ago when I first started researching this. Uh, And yet we know now what we need to do. And so, we need more people to get educated, get involved in what you're doing, you know, raising this issue and no longer accepting more of the same judgment and shame against people who use drugs, but having that heart of compassion for them.
0: Well, this book has so much heart and it is also so thorough and looks at the evidence in a way that I really respect. And so I appreciate you writing it and I appreciate you coming on today. Thanks so much. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.